This podcast may contain discussions about violence, drug use, and it's most definitely going to contain a lot of foul language. I'm sorry, Sorry He Sucks, the season finale of season two. Can you even believe it? We're so good at making podcasts. I mean, we're productive and efficient. I've never been this productive in my life. No. Um, Thank you so much to y'all out there for listening to us. Yes, from the bottom of our cold dead hearts, we'd like to say thank you so much. Yeah, you're really pretty great. Let's just get into it. It's going to be a long one. Yeah. Last episode, I think I mentioned that this would be, that that would be the longest episode that we'd done. Oh, no. No, no, no. This is definitely going to be the longest episode we've done. Just looking at the word count. It's rich with content. It's massive. Uh, We're doing two of the biggest rock bands of all time. Ever. And I'm going to start. Kick it off. With one of Cara's faves, mm. the Rolling Stones. Nice. Um, I said that in a very stupid accent. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> the Stones. Yeah, that's is good. That's good. Yeah. The Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love an accent. Anyway, let's start. Let's get into it. Uh, all right. So I'm setting the scene here. Mm-hmm. It's July 26, 1943, in Dartford. Kent. Okay. There's a weird weather phenomenon where England is in drought. Bizarre. Can you imagine old Blighty with no no rain? No. Uh, I happen to know that because there's a wild fucking website where you can put in dates and see what the weather was like. That's cool. It's so cool. Anyway, that's the only reason I know that. I don't even know why I looked it up. I'm sorry, that's really unnecessary. (laughs) Anyway, drought in Dartford and Eva Ensley Mary, who was born in Sydney, Australia, FYI, uh, popped out a sweet little baby and named him Michael Philip Jagger. Great name. Um, That same year in the same hospital, but on the 18th of December... Doris Maud Lydia Richards birthed an equally wee little Keith. you got to say it with an F. Yeah. <laughs> you have to. You could, yeah. Um, I would like to mention here also that Mick's family were very much conservative types, conservative mm-hmm. voters, and little Keith came from a long line of socialist activists and lefties basically. Yeah. So pretty different families here. The two boys went to the same school. Really? And they were buds, uh, but they lost contact with each other when Mick's family moved to another village and then he changed schools. Yeah. So, uh, and then they grew up. Um, And so as per their built-in differences, when they grew older, 
Keith had gone to art school mm-hmm. and Mick was at uni studying economics, which is not very rock and roll. That's so weird. Um, but then because of a chance encounter. Oh, my God. And literally every single article that I read said chance encounter. Um, <laughs> anyway, this chance encounter <laughs> on platform two of Dartford Traino. Uh, at the stage. At the stage. <laughs> the two rekindled their friendship and realised they had something massive in common. What was it, Amber? Music, Cara. Shit. They bonded over their love of Chuck Berry and started jamming and going to see bands. And in 1962, they saw a young Brian Jones doing a slide guitar thing at a small blues club and they were totally amazed by his white boy blues talent. Go, BJ. Uh, Lewis Brian Hopkins Jones, no relation to me, was born in Gloucestershire in 1942. His middle-class parents both played music and Brian played many instruments while he was growing up. He was somewhat of a prodigy. Mm. He could pick up anything and just know how to play it. And apparently with no effort at all, he, like, aced all of his school exams. He just, like, was good at stuff. Okay. Without even trying. One of those people with natural talent. Well, bloody da Don't worry. He died. <laughs> In the summer of 59 and at the age of 17, Brian got his girlfriend, also very age-appropriate, 17, preggers. He tried to convince her to have an abortion but she was not into it and carried the child to term before adopting him out. Wow. Brian quit school in disgrace and went travelling across Europe. Wow. According to Wikipedia, he did this bohemian style. Oh, okay. <laughs> which I assume sounds very hip. Busking for money and like crashing on people's couches and yeah. stuff. But eventually he got tired of being <laughs> povo and he headed home. Okay. Then in November of that year, so it wasn't going that long, um, he met a white hot married babe. At a club and afterwards they went home and did it. Whoa. And the woman got pregnant. Oh, my God. He's and got some mm, strong sperm. But this time her and the woman's husband raised the baby as their own. Whoa. Did the, do you know if the husband knew? I think so. I guess so. Um, but apparently Brian didn't know about this. Oh, wow. Came out much later. Um, And then a couple of years later in 1962, Brian's girlfriend, Pat Andrews, got pregnant and she gave birth to Brian's third child. Holy majoli. And he lived with them for a while. He even sold his record collection to buy flowers for Pat and clothes for the baby. What a stand-up guy. Yeah. Three kids by the time he was 20. Use a fucking condom, Brian. But don't worry. He eventually abandoned his child and moved to London to be a blues musician. Oh, phew. I thought you no, Thank God. I thought you were completely deviating from the system. Ugh. He played slide guitar with a bunch of musos who were eventually to become Cream, starring the villain Captain Dickface 
Eric Clapton. Can I just point out that already in your script there was like just the exact parallels in mine. Oh, but fun. anyway, <laughs> we're in each other's heads all the time, all the time. <laughs> well, we're in England yeah. too. Um, anyway, that was the club where Mick and Keith saw Brian play, and mm. soon after they saw an ad that Brian had placed asking for fellow musicians to audition for his band. Mm-hmm. The first member to make the cut was a piano player named Ian Stewart. Okay. And then came Mick and Keith and some other guys who either left or were kicked out later. Got so it. I'm not going to go bother naming them. Okay. <laughs> you don't know them, Cara. No. <laughs> uh, they booked their first gig before they even had a name. And when the venue owner called Brian to ask what the name was, there was like a Best of Muddy Waters record lying on the ground next to him and he looked down at it and panicked and just said, The Rolling Stones after a track on the Really? Album. Yeah, but I think originally they were called The Rolling Stones and then they added a G. Well, they're grammatically correct and, you know, well-educated boys. Yeah. All right, so at first they were kind of failing... They were playing at jazz clubs and the music they were playing wasn't jazz. Yeah, right. Um, They were straight up R&B, like, blues music. Brian and Mick and Keith shared a flat for about a year and they spent their days jamming and refining their skills and and getting to know each other very well. Mm. Um, And eventually Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman joined and once they had their rhythm section, they fucking found their groove. Yeah. Although, truth be told, at this point, they kind of were still just a blues cover band. <laughs> they were yeah, just so a, they're not writing originals. They yeah. were just a good blues cover band. Mm-hmm. Nothing uh, wrong with a cover band. No. <laughs> they had a weekly residency at a club in Richmond and in just five weeks they went from playing to ten people to hundreds. They were a bloody sensation. Andrew Oldham who had previously done publicity work for the Beatles, Mm -hmm. saw them and was like, I want to manage them, I want to make them my Beatles. Mm -hmm. Um, So he kicked out the very uncool piano player. Oh. He was older and he had really shit hair. Fair enough then. Um, And then Oldham put them in leather jackets and boom, famous. Possibly because of those leather jackets, older people were a bit freaked out. Yeah. And the... At the time, like, the Beatles were pretty clean cut. and They had their matching suit garb going on. Yeah, and so the Stones were like the bad boys. Right. And in 1964, Melody Maker ran a headline that said, would you let your daughter date a Rolling Stone? Which is pretty funny. <laughs> your daughter can do whatever she wants. You're yeah. not a fucking boss of her vagina. No. Um... Their brand was pretty much sex, drugs and Satanism though. Love it. So my thing. It's just the S- SDS. Yeah, the SDS. That used to be a surf shop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, surf, dive and ski. Surf, dive and ski. But really it would be cool if they were, you opened a shop called SDS. Sex, drugs and rock and roll. Sex oh, wait, sorry, <laughs> Satanism. <laughs> Same thing. Bloody forgot it already. Um, anyway, girls were screaming their heads off wherever they went. Uh, and later that year their first album came out, went straight to number one. 
got pretty wild. Three months later, they were in Blackpool playing a show, and mm-hmm. some kid was spitting at Keith, and then well, don't do that. Keith kicked him in the head, and then there was a fucking riot, oh, shit. <laughs> which is wild. Keith has a bit of a temper, I think. Oh, it seems all right. But if someone spat on me, I'd kick him in the head. Yeah. Spitting is really disgusting. Yeah, we spoke about it last episode. It's fucking foul. <laughs> uh, everyone loved Mick because he was so hot and he was a weird dancer. And Brian was pissed because it was his band and he wanted Where to be the leader of the band, but Mick was just too rad. Yeah. Um, and because Brian was being such an annoying crybaby, <laughs> Mick and Keith started spending more and more time together and then they started writing songs together. Yeah. And they were like, sorry, Brian, you can't come. You can't sit with us, Brian. Uh, and Brian couldn't write a song to save his life. He was, was, he was an incredibly good musician but not Fucking amazing at impregnating women and then leaving them. Yes. That Powerful was the skill set. Sperm and <laughs> talented guitarist. Yeah. But that's about it. Um, Mick and Keith's first song together was the absolutely iconic Satisfaction, I Can't Get No, which is insanely good. for an like incredible your first, first song. song. <laughs> Love-wise, Bill was just going around boning like a million women. Wow. While Charlie remained faithful to his lady always. Really? Yeah. He's the best. Uh, Mick met the absolutely incred Marianne Faithful mm. uh, when he spilled wine on her and then somehow won her over. It was his hips and his lips. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian met Anita Pallenberg and it was love. And they had a pretty crazy relation. Both of them loved the drugs and they loved the drama. Mm. Um, Keith also had a girlfriend that he probably constantly treat, cheated on. I can't. I did know her name but now I don't know her name. Can't okay. remember. Uh, Mick and Keith were writing more and more, making hit after hit and then they all got on the drugs train. Cool. The fast drugs train. Toot, toot, beep, and beep. And then they became even more like, fuck you, an anti-establishment. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Then the, the establishment or dun, dun, dun. the news of the world tabloid. Ooh. <laughs> um, they'd been running all these stories on rock stars um, and they were called pop stars and drugs, facts that will shock you. <laughs> Nerds. Uh, The first article targeted Donovan. Oh, yeah. And he was arrested shortly after its publication. Mm -hmm. The next one was about the Rolling Stones. And the author claimed that he'd seen Mick Jagger at a club taking Benzedrine, smoking hash and blabbing on about all the drugs he took. But it was actually Brian Jones. Because Brian was like, I'm the leader of the Rolling Stones. And the, the guy was like, oh, it must be Mick Jagger. <sighs> Fact check, buddy. <laughs> what an idiot. Just like. That's not hard to. Just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Mick sued them for libel. Fair enough. And then the paper was even more pissed off right. and was determined to get some dirt. They on fucking Bill. doubled down. Um, sorry, on Mick, yeah. So they followed him around, bugged his phones. 
They'd park outside all of their houses all night. Yeah. It was pretty fucked. Ruthless. Yeah. And then Keith threw an acid party, as you do. Your mates, George and Patty, were there. Hi, guys. Dennis Hopper. Oh. William Burroughs, Kenneth Anger, and, of course, Mick and Marianne. Brian wasn't invited. (gasps) There were others there too, but, again, you don't know them, Cara. Okay, fair enough. Um, Anyway, they injected LSD, which is fucking intense. I didn't even really realise that was the jam. I think that's dangerous and insane, but whatever. If you're going to do it, just get it, just swallow it, kids. It's much more gentle. Imagine if you injected it and you're just like tripping really hard instantly. No, thank you. Um, Anyway, as soon as George and Patty left, the cops stormed in. (gasps) Yeah. And arrested everybody. Um, the news of the world had tipped off the cops. <laughs> there were a lot of rumours about this raid. One was that the cops walked in on Mick eating a Mars bar out of Marianne's vagina. Yeah, I've, I, yeah, <laughs> I've read that one. And I'm pretty sure, like, they all just kind of laugh it off, like, who the fuck thinks of these things? Yeah. Um, and she <sighs> was naked, though, because she'd just gotten out of the bath. Okay. Um, but she, that's not true. She didn't have a Mars bar up, of course. No. <laughs> um, the other, <laughs> yuck. <laughs> um, the other rumour was that the paper tipped off the cops after George and Patty left because they loved the Beatles and they didn't want George mixed up in the drug story. Hey, imagine if you were staking out that house though and you're just watching like fucking... Person after person, like incredibly famous, walking in this house. Yeah, I want to go in there. Uh, yeah, I don't want to shoot up. Yeah, I'm not shooting up that. But I would like no. to come to the party. I'm just gonna hang out in the kitchen. Maybe I'll look after you all. Mm, sure. And then run away. <laughs> <laughs> the cops didn't actually find much at all. Really. Um, but Mick and Keith went to jail anyway. Um, Mick cried. Keith was pretty chill about it. Um, And the case case dragged out for months and there was a feeling that they would actually serve jail time, even though basically what they found were like cold and flu tablets and probably a little bit of weed or something, a little bit of LSD, nothing, Mm. fucking nothing. Yeah. Um, And they were finally acquitted after a pretty big campaign from fans and this cool investigative journalist was on their side and was just like, this is bullshit. Do you know, like, the kind of sentence they were trying to, like, um, duration? I'm just curious, like, you know, because you get, like, in at that time you would get some community service and a $50 fine if you raped a woman. So yeah. I was just wondering what they might get. <laughs> for cold for and getting, flu tablets. Yeah, for cold and for a bit of Sudafed <laughs> and a little bit of weed. It, I think, I mean... The, and one of the reasons they got out was that journalist was just like, it's not fair. You're making this weird circus about them. It's a vendetta, isn't it? Yeah. Like, And they're making an example of them, mm. but they don't really have any credibility. Yeah, 100%. So it's, yeah, it was good that they got off. Um, and after all this mess, Keith, 
Brian and Anita went to Morocco to escape the press madness. But on the way there, Brian got sick, he had asthma, and went into hospital in France, I think. And Keith and Anita continued on without Brian. And after fucking in the backseat of the car with the poor bloody driver in attendance, Keith basically stole Anita away from Brian. Yeah. Guys. And then Brian finally caught up with them. They were all in a hotel. The two others just ditched him, left him with the bill and hightailed it out of there, which is so low. Yeah. Keith. Again, ruthless, like. Keith and Anita moved in together and were very in love and Brian was understandably losing his shit a bit. Yeah. He was using heaps of drugs, not showing up to shows, constantly getting busted. He was a liability. The band wanted to go to the States but because Brian had been arrested so many times for drug offences, he couldn't get a visa. Yeah. So on the 8th of June, 1969, they kicked poor bloody Brian out of the band. <laughs> he lost his band, he lost his gal. Sad face. Sad face indeed. Cry face. There was even talk that um, the drug bust had caused some pretty serious issues between them. Even though Brian wasn't even there, they blamed him for starting the whole thing. But With the journalist in the bar that mistook him. For I mean, there's, uh, sounds like, okay. It's a bloody mess. Brian. Brian. Uh, they replaced him with Mick Taylor, who by all accounts was a pretty boring sort. Fair enough. I didn't even look him up. He might not have been boring. <laughs> He just seemed boring. <laughs> okay. I'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> um, on the 2nd of July, so like a month later, Brian had a party and all that's known is that he was found at the bottom of his pool sometime near midnight. And the inquest into his death found that he died of drowning by misadventure. Mm. But others say he might have committed suicide Maybe he died of a broken heart. Wow. I personally think he was murdered. Do you? Yeah, if you want to know more about that, you should watch this rad documentary on Amazon Prime called Rolling Stone, The Life of Brian Jones. It is shocking. Oh, can we talk about this later? Emma, we can talk about a, anything. Okay, because Amber messaged me and she said she was in a – I just want to tell you this because I thought it was funny. I thought it was a moment <laughs> of funniness on my part. But Amber messaged me and said she was in a Brian Jones death hole and she couldn't get out of it. So then I sent her a voice note of me singing along to you 2s um, stuck in a moment but just <laughs> stuck in a Brian Jones and you can't get out of it. <laughs> Anyway, look, it was so. It's is that like a conspiracy then that he was murdered, or is there quite credible evidence? Well, I didn't write any of this in my notes to fill out the podcast because I was like, it'll take forever. Yeah. So I'll just give you a brief rundown. Give me a little taste. So he owed this builder heaps of money. Oh, he could pay it. Maybe I don't know if he was just fucked up and kept forgetting to pay it. Anyway, the builder came over that day and he had a girlfriend with him. Um, People said that they saw them fighting, 
like punching each other and Builder and Brian, yeah. Um, and then when he was found, so when they did the autopsy, that's right, this one, this is the shocking one. Go on. So he had fresh water in his lungs, okay. not the pool water. Okay. And there was like next to the pool was like a trough that was full of fresh water for his animals or whatever. And there was a little bit of blood there and they all reckon that the he was the drowned, like in the drowned him in the trough, threw him in the pool. Threw him in the pool. And then the girlfriend <laughs> apparently when she went home a couple of days later was saying, because it all came out in the press and she was saying to her family members, he didn't drown by, by accident and saying all these things and then oh she was God. brutally attacked, <gasps> brutally attacked. Uh, I don't know if she died. I can't remember. Then anyway, so in 2009 or three, I can't remember, they did a like they <laughs> opened an inquest into the death. Yeah. And <laughs> the Crown closed the case for 75 years. Which means there's got to be a fucking conspiracy, right? Because why the fuck would they do that? Why do they do that? Because they, all of this recent news that's come out about the mothers and babies yeah. home in Ireland, they it's were gonna fucked. they were gonna close that for seventy five years, which yeah. means none of the fucking victims mm-hmm. will be able to ever know the fucking truth. It is disgusting. Well, I just don't understand how they can do that. It seems like well, it a obviously means that there's something really Hideous. bad in there. Yeah. Anyway. I must move on. Okay. I must. Brian's dead. The Rolling Stones certainly moved on. They didn't give a fuck really. <laughs> um, they did put on a memorial concert where Mick read a very terrible, maybe a Keats poem and they released like 10,000 butterflies or something. Oh, dear. It was very well attended. Um, and Brian was the first of the 60s high-profile rock and roll deaths. Mm. He started the 27 Club. Yes, he did, didn't he? I was yeah. just about to ask that. Um, and look, things things just went on for the band. They continued Clearly, to be yeah. a popular band. Uh, but, you know, there were some issues. They had financial issues with their new manager, Alan Klein. He was a real bastard. Mm-hmm. There's even a conspiracy theory that he had something to do with Brian's death. Mm. Anyway. Um, and the band moved to the south of France. They took lots of drugs, built this cool little studio. Were they avoiding tax? Yeah. yeah. And they made Exile on Main Street. It was a good one. Great. Great album. Um, Keith and Anita had two kids, but they were mostly... Just mad junkies, super addicted to heroin. Yeah. Needles and babies everywhere. Yeah. Not great. Um, Mick pursued movies. Mm. Uh, Australia's own Ned Kelly. Oh, of course. I've never seen that. No, neither. Uh, and he married a Nicaraguan model named Bianca Perez Mora Macias. Fucking babe. And they had a kid, which they called Jade. Yeah. Um, and this was his only legal marriage. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, in 1974, Mick Taylor, who <laughs> uh, <laughs> left the band to pursue a solo career. Good luck to you, mate. 
Um, and they replaced him with Ronnie Wood. Oh, my God, Ooh. it's your favourite. I can't even talk about him. He's too gross. Um, Keith and Anita's third baby died of SIDS. And yeah. people said it was about drugs, but I don't think so. It's just so fucking sad. I mean, no matter what you slice, it's still fucking sad. Someone yeah. has lost their it's kid. It's fucking awful. Uh, he broke up with Anita in 1980 and tried to get clean. Mick's marriage then was over and he was with Jerry Hall. Mm. And then Mick tried a solo career, so did Keith, and they were fighting all the time. Yeah. And the Stones were kind of done in the 80s. Um, they did release five albums, but they didn't really have any Wow. Hits. Well, my dad played Tattoo You so much that my first words were Start Me Up. Oh, my God. So it was a hit in our house. You're the coolest little baby. I know. I mean, I'm probably sure. I probably said like mama and dada. My first word my was. My first string of words. Start, was me, start up. me up. That's cool. My Yeah, my first word was hello. Oh. Literally, I just say hello. And apparently I said it quite clearly. So that it was just like, and I was bored till I, bald <laughs> till I was seven. I was bald so, until I was two and a half. It was so long. And so I'd just be in like a trolley being like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Uh, in 1989, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well deserved. And at the ceremony, Mick and Keith made up and got the band back together. And now, do you reckon they said that? Let's get the band back together. I think they definitely said that. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, and now they're just like an institution. Mm. They've been sponsored by like massive corporations that you can get a Rolling Stones credit card. Well. Yeah. They're a money machine. Yeah. And I guess that economics degree wasn't such a dorky move for Mick after all. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, in 2003, the poster boy for the anti-establishment movement, Mick Jagger, was knighted. I know. <laughs> and apparently so Keith was really pissed off about it. Really? I mean, Keith is rock and roll. Yeah. He's this indestructible survivor. He loves music. And, you know, so Mick is just a fucking fancy man. Yeah. And today they're all grandfathers still on tour. Actually, Mick is a great grandfather. Holy bajoli. I just feel like they must be real greedy <laughs> to still tour. They just love coin. Yeah, I don't know if you, yeah, I don't, it must get I mean, tiresome like, after a while, right? They're singing the same stuff. People want to hear the hits. They're doing like I mean, they forever. probably do it in real luxury. Yeah, for sure. So that would be something. And you, that, I mean, I imagine they can do it with their fucking eyes closed at this point. Yeah, exactly. Mm-mm. So tell me, Kara. Why do you love the Rolling Stones? The Rolling Stones. I um, I I think like most people, I just like I grew up listening to the Rolling Stones. It was just like in my house all the time. It was part mm. of my life from forever. Same. So that's just that's the kind of the catalyst, I guess. But I also I read I read Keith Richards' biography. Life. Yeah. 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 It's intense, but, like, I think at the end of it I just thought it was a bit more of an arrogant twat. Mm. And 
Also, I think I was just like logically trying to figure out how the fuck he is still alive. Yeah. You said just before, you said it was indestructible. I think that is a perfect way to. Yeah, he's a pretty, he's pretty cool really in that way. Yeah. But he did come, he did come across like, I, I think that's, yeah, very arrogant. But also, uh, you know, we, we've spoken about this loads of times, but it's how, how could you not become arrogant with a life? Like yeah. that. that, and they'd had that life forever for most of their life. Yeah, um, like I also love like the women of the Rolling Stones. Like you said, like yeah, they had good taste. They were really it's just like these beautiful, like m- mesmerizing women that were just like they're so like sexy and fascinating. These muses. I don't know how I yeah. feel about the whole muse thing, but like still, I just like. They were really fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, so, like you said, like Anita Pallenberg and like Marianne Faithful, and I mean Bianca is gorgeous. Yeah, and all, she just has she has such a face that's like, don't fuck with me. She does. Don't fuck with. That's what she looks like. I love Anita. She's just so gorgeous. Yeah, Anita's really beautiful. Who but Anita could look was so really, good as a junkie. I know, <laughs> but she she was like I feel like she was. Negligent, and also mm. I, I don't know. I just think absolutely. It's something about being so in a jumpsuit. Keith, way more negligent than her. No, I, I mean, like, I've, I think I'm more comparing Bianca and Anita oh, okay, as opposed okay, okay. to yeah, Keith is way worse than Anita. Yeah. Um, also, Jerry Hall, like you mentioned, do you ever just stop and remember that Jerry Hall? Is married to Rupert Murdoch. I do, and I the don't Lizard understand. King? It's it's so wild because I think I don't know. I just forget about it all the time, and then someone says it, I'm like, oh my fucking god! It just I don't and know. I love her. When my in I guess it was in the eighties when I was a kid. Yeah, my dad was a house painter, and one of his clients was Paul Dainty, who was at the time, and he still is, the, one of the biggest touring companies in Australia. Oh, yeah. And he was painting their house and while he was there, Mick and Jerry were staying there. Oh, my God. And my dad was like an uber fan and was just like pissing his pants with excitement <laughs> and every day he saw Jerry and she would make him a cup of tea. Oh, my God. He said he only saw Mick one time though. Okay. And he didn't even talk to him. Oh. But it didn't make him not love him anymore. Eh. Well. He was just like. <gasps> well, yeah, you know, it was only one time. Maybe just they passed, didn't collide, I guess. But I think they've got, I mean, obviously, you know, like they've just got such an incredible um, repertoire of songs, like all of like just amazing kind of breadth of output of incredible singles but I guess yeah. I think Beast of Burden is one of my favourites. I fucking love Mother's Little Helper and Ruby Tuesday yeah, and She's a Rainbow. Good. I think all three of those were like really like high school fucking love them. Can't You Hear Me Knocking although like that is a bit long. <laughs> I think Let's Spend the Night Together is good. Do you rec- what do you think if I just like went on a date and then just started like seeing that? <laughs> Let's spend the night together. I also um, I I used to date this guy. We were engaged actually briefly. But, like, he did the 
best impression of Mick Jagger. He'd do the little little clap, little clap oh, at the so front good. and then like a little bit of a wiggle. I was watching heaps of videos. He's such a hilarious but also a good dancer. I know, but it's like so unique to him. It's so weird, but great. I love it. I it just every time this person used to do this impression, <laughs> I would just lose it every um, time. I feel like laughing and I haven't even seen it. It's so good. And he was British too. Ovs. It's oh. my jam. Uh yeah, that's pretty much it. I think it's like it's one of those bands that where you grow up with and then it's just Who do you think is the hottest? Who's the hottest stone? I reckon Keith was pretty hot, but it's in, in ages ago, not now. Whoa. But now it, he throws me off. But He only looks good because he's better looking than Ronnie Wood, but he looks a bit like Ronnie Wood. I've been meaning to tell you this. Oh no. It's Ronnie Wood. <laughs> Foul. I'm, I'm kidding. It's definitely Mick Jagger. He's the hottest. He is so the hottest. There's no question. Although, like now, as if I had to marry one of them. Charlie. Now, Charlie. For Charlie. Sure. He's aged the best out He's, of all of them. It's because he didn't fuck himself up with drugs and and women. Do you think? Those <laughs> <laughs> be- the worst beastly drug of all, they women. Do, they give you terrible wrinkles. They do. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> but I was going to say, don't you think that Harry Styles has a little Mick Jagger about him? But like, Totally. That's hotter? his whole thing. I mean, do, oh, okay. Is he trying to do that? Is that Well, like- I think, <laughs> I don't think he's trying. He just kind does of, look yeah. like him. But I think he's like hotter. I'm not, I mean... Maybe your mind is tainted with old Mick. I think it is, genuinely. And I feel bad for that because it's fine. You should look at some young Mick. Yeah, I, I did before I got here and it's pretty hot. He's Ooh. a real babe. Sorry, yeah. it was too noisy. No, I liked it. It was a bit sexual. Um, You're going to ruin them for me? Yeah, look, I'm just going to tell you some stuff. Okay. Um, And first I'm just going to tell you this really long story about the time that they played Altamont. Ah, yes, okay. All right, let's get into it. Everyone, get comfortable. <laughs> get in a chair or go for a, a, a walk, a light jog. No, no jogging. Don't be ridiculous. You hurt yourself. No, you're right. Amber's going to tell us a story. All right. So in 1969, the band were on tour in the United States of America mm. um, and it had been going really well. They were Good job, huge. boys. Um, and at some point they met the Grateful Dead and they talked about how the Stones should do a free concert in San Francisco because they always used to do free concerts. Um, and Woodstock had just happened and was, like, amazing. And the hippie counterculture was still massive despite the mood in America with, like, Nixon winning the election and, like, cops Nixon, fuck off. Stop cameoing in our episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Such a stage five clinger, Nixon. (laughs) So dumb. So the lineup was supposed to be the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, the Flying Burrito Brothers, who I did honestly think were some kind of circus troupe. (laughs) Um, I think I did for a while too. (laughs) Jefferson Airplane and Rob Thomas's favourite band, Santana. <laughs> so smooth. Um, the Hell's Angels yeah. were brought on board initially, basically just to protect the generators at the festival. 
Um, and they also had this idea that if they parked their motorbikes in front of the stage, then no one would rush to the stage, which honestly is very silly. But the bikies had done loads of security for the Grateful Dead at their shows before and nothing terrible had ever happened. Mm. But none of their concerts were this fucking big. Yeah. So the day of the concert, the Hells Angels were a massive presence among the 300,000. Is that all right? 300,000? I mean, that could be wrong, but let's Google it. I mean, I did Google it, but. It seems like a lot. Ding, ding, ding. You win a new car, Amber. 300,000 is so many. It was 300,000, December 6, 1969. I can't even imagine that many people. Anyway. You're so smart. Um, there was no food or water stands, no amenities, and like two very basic medic areas. It was absolutely packed. And a lot of people are on bad acid and everyone was drinking a lot of very cheap, nasty booze. Was there bad red rope licorice going around the crowd? <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. was fun. Wayne Stark. <laughs> there was no toilets, like let alone anywhere to water, get water. Water. Anything. That's nuts. When Santana, who were the first act to play, um, when they played, the angels started beating on a young man and then another guy tried to intervene but he got pummeled by angels with pull cues and ended up getting 16 stitches in his head. Shit. More angels arrived from different chapters. They were guys who weren't the same as the Grateful Dead loving San Francisco angels which should be pointed out. And while Jefferson Aeroplane, Aeroplane? <laughs> Airplane? Airplane. <laughs> Aeroplane. <laughs> Jefferson Aeroplane <laughs> were playing. Fans were getting singled out for beatings for God knows what reasons. Probably none. And the singer, not the lady singer, the man singer, mm. Marty Bailen, uh, he tried to ask them to stop attacking the fans. Jeez. And then he was attacked too. And then an angel, like, grabbed the mic, threatened the band and threatened the crowd. On the stage. On the stage. Fucking Absolutely hell. terrifying. And Sam Cutler, who was the Rolling Stones tour manager, was desperately trying to, like, fix shit. Like, the violence was just getting worse and worse. But, you know, like, what could some little English dude do against... That's a fucking nightmare. And uh, when the Flying Burrito Brothers were playing... Oh, not the circus. <laughs> the Rolling Stones arrived by helicopter mm. and, like, as soon as Mick stepped off the helicopter, some kid high out of his mind punched him in the face, like square in the face. Whoa. There's footage of all of this too, by the way. Yeah, this is a ca- like in um, case biography. Mm. Uh, and then the Grateful Dead arrived... And then they saw all the violence and the chaos and they were just like, fuck this, and left. <gasps> Which is fucking shocking. Because it was their, their fucking, fucking idea. suggestion. Um, and then Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young played and they played a v- as short a set as they possibly could and hightailed it fuck out of there. Everyone's waiting for the stones though. And then because <laughs> the dead had left, they were supposed to play next 
the space between the sets was like two hours. No, you just got to go on. And everyone in the crowd was getting even more edgy. Um, And by the time the Rolling Stones got on stage, the mood was super menacing. At the front there were more angels than fans and the Stones later said that they played out of fear, like they were scared they would be literally killed if they didn't play. And there's video footage of the whole show um, and I watched what I could. There's bits that they didn't release Mm. but... Um, at one point they're in the middle of a song and Mick's dancing and jumping around and then he like abruptly stops dancing with this horrified look on his face looking into the crowd of this bike. He just like whacking some kid with a fucking steel rod or something. Oh, my God. And then he's like begging the crowd, please, guys, keep it together. (laughs) But there wasn't really much he could fucking do. No. Um, and there were people in the front row shouting out for Mick to help them. Oh, my God. <sighs> and then Keith's feeling a bit desperate and he says, if these cats don't cool it, man, we don't play. Uh-oh. But those cats did not cool it. And while the band was playing Under My Thumb, which is problematic and a story for another time, uh... An 18-year-old man named Meredith Hunter, high out of his mind and sick of the violence, pulled a gun on one of the angels. He got two shots off before the angel pushed him to the ground, got out a knife and stabbed him to death. And then the people in the crowd carried his dead body and put it on the stage at Keith's feet. Oh, my God. And the angels just jumped up on the stage and kicked it off the stage. <gasps> and the band was so terrified that they just continued the set. Oh, my God. It is fucked. Two other young people died in a hit and run that night and there was another death, an LSD-related drowning in a trench. It was not peace and love. It was violence and hate and I am honestly surprised that no one else was murdered. Yeah. There must have been a lot more fucking injured. must have been countless injured. Fuck. And I know that this isn't really all the band's fault but I also don't really understand why they played. Like... And why was the show so badly organised? Yeah. They took... Like the the dead were organising it and then the Stones management and the band took over the whole thing. So... I mean, the thing is like obviously like festivals and concerts have gone, you know, a huge way. Like there, there's been well, many instances of people like dying with overcrowding and things like that in the past but... To think that they wouldn't have, like, the basic necessities to keep people alive. It's crazy. It's just, like, they, they haven't thought about this 300,000. Yeah, and to think you must. There must have just been piss everywhere. Yeah. I feel like they have to shoulder some of the blame somehow. I don't I mean, like, can you imagine, like, hell, coming in, in a helicopter as well and yeah. seeing that <laughs> yeah. situation from above. Yeah. I mean, there were no phones or whatever, but the tour manager was there trying to sort stop everyone from fucking 
fighting. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he would have just met the thing and gone, "Mm -mm, fuck off, leave. Yeah. Like I'm shocked. It's, it's, it's a weird one because obviously there was such intimidation and fear of what was going on and no one knew how to counteract that or how to solve the problem because Mm. there must have been just such fear. Yeah. But of course it's going to come to a head and that obviously happened. But anyway. Well, after he was killed, they played another like seven songs. And he's just, oh, he got kicked back into the crowd? That is so, that makes my stomach feel. so bad. (sighs) Ah. Anyway. I, I mean, I don't know. That's fucking traumatic on all levels. It's so scary. I can't even imagine what it was like. No. Ugh. Uh, anyway, I'm going to tell you some more terrible things. Okay. Um, individually. Um, and they all had their moments of exhibiting truly shitty behaviour. Mm. Um, and, you know, so that we aren't here until tomorrow evening, I'm going to try and keep it as brief as I can. Okay. Okay. So, Brian, at the time that Brian met Anita, he was living with a girlfriend and their child. Not one of the children I talked about before. Her child. No, it was his child too. Oh. But another kid. He ended up, I think, having six children. Far out. There could have been more. It's wild. Anyway, he kicked out the mother and child uh, so that Anita could move in. So (laughs) gross. Um, and it was also widely known amongst the group that Brian was hitting Anita. And he was just generally out of his mind. I watched a whole lot of docos and it seemed like he was this really annoying little boy who had no idea what he was doing. Yeah. But he just, like, didn't want anyone to know that he didn't know what he was doing. I'm not a big fan of Brian. Imposter kind of. Yeah. Fucking violent psycho. Mm-hmm. Not a fan. Bye-bye. Okay, I bet you didn't think I was going to talk about Bill Wyman, did you? Oh! Well, I think he might be up there with the worst of them. Really? He's got cheekbones for days, could cut glass. Just saying. Um, In 1989, a 52-year-old Bill married Mandy Smith, an 18-year-old woman who he had been dating for five years. That's statutory. Absolutely revolting. And in his 1990 autobiography, he said, quote, she was a woman at 13. What? Everyone accepted her as an adult without question. Well, she was actually barely a teenager, Bill. She was fucking 13. Jesus. Uh, Mandy said that she had sex for the first time with Bill when she was 14. It's just awful. And in 1993, the marriage ended and it ended badly. Um, So they were not married for very long. Um, She was asking for a $7.5 million settlement, but she only ended up getting $870,000. And I'm not sure that's fair. He had plenty of money. He's a gross old pedo and he should have fucking paid her. Oh, I can't imagine. 18 years old. He was 56? He was Pick 52 up when they married. 52. And she Go to poo. So disgusting. 20 years later, when Bill's daughter was 14, he said of his relationship with Mandy, quote, it was very emotional and special at the time. 
It wasn't how it was reported to be and it was the only time it ever happened in my life. A lot of people understood but a lot didn't and the media certainly didn't. And I don't either, Bill. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Fuck off, Bill. And there's one little tidbit about this horrible story that makes it just a little bit grosser. So Bill had a son from his first marriage um, when from, that lasted from 59 to 69 and at the same time that Bill started dating, I mean grooming Mandy, his son was hooking up with Mandy's mother. What? Yeah, ew. <laughs> Wow. That's all kinds of fucked up. Why didn't they just swap? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how old the son was. Probably still wouldn't be very appropriate. No. Ew. Okay. I thought Mick Jagger was going to turn out to be such a jerk, but he's mostly pretty clean. And I guess (laughs) I'm saying that in comparison to the other members in the band, so the bars are relatively low. Yeah. Um, Bianca divorced him on the grounds of adultery because of him cheating with Jerry Hall. Probably happened, right? Who he was with for many years and they had four children before she dumped him because, surprise, surprise, he was cheating on her too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the other stuff's so bad. That, that seems fine to me. <laughs> but there's one thing that I have to talk about and that is the lyrics to Brown Sugar. Uh-huh. If some white guy at my work recited those lyrics to a black co-worker, he would be sacked. If a band today wrote that song, there would be serious consequences. And I know a lot has changed in the way of white people coming to an understanding around language and the fetishizing of women of colour. So I'm not surprised that a song like this was written And I don't really even hold it against them that they did write it, but I do hold it against them that they continue to perform that song. So it's definitely not about heroin. No. I mean, because I always assume that that it was about... At the time they wrote it, he was with a black woman. Okay. um, But then someone has said, like people have said to me before that it's about heroin. Here's some words. Gold Coast slave ship bound for cotton fields, sold in a market in New Orleans, scarred old slaver knows he's doing all right, hear him hip, whip the women just around midnight. Oh, my God. Brown sugar, how come you taste so good? Brown sugar, just like a young girl should. I, I've, ne- I don't, I ne- I've never looked at those lyrics. That's fucking horrid. And it just goes on and it's gross. Yeah, it's just weird that they still perform it. Mm. I had never looked at those lyrics before. No. But when you think about it, what the fuck? Anyway, okay, now as for Keith, there are so many fucking issues with him that I don't (laughs) even know where to start and I don't know what to leave out, what to leave in. So here's some random information. Mm Mm-hmm. So first of all, he stole Anita away from Brian. But honestly, after being such a horrible asshole, and she was in this domestic violence situation, Keith is a bloody hero. And I do think that they genuinely loved each other in a gross drug addict sexual obsession kind of way. Yeah, and they looked fucking great together. True. Uh, In an interview. 
with New Musical Express in 2007, Keith mm. said, quote, The strangest thing I've tried to snort, my father. Oh, yeah. He was cremated and I couldn't resist grinding him up with a little bit of blow. And later, in response to people who are upset by this, Keith said, my dad wouldn't have cared. He didn't give a shit. And it's pretty fucking wild. I don't know if it, like, could ruin him. But no. it's so funny. I had to leave that in. So it obviously was real. I was like, that can't be real. I know I wasn't. But he, like, said it and then he commented on it a few times being like, yeah, yeah, I did it. It's just fucking odd. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Um... He was busted for drugs so many times. One time in Canada with an ounce of heroin. Wow. A lot of heroin. And that time he was facing a long jail sentence and charges of trafficking. But despite being found guilty, all he actually had to do was put on a benefit concert for the blind. What? And I must also mention that it was during this time that Keith was partying with the Canadian Prime Minister. <gasps> Pierre Trudeau and almost certainly fucked his wife, Margaret, Justin's parental. No, Justin's dad is Fidel Castro. That's what you say. <laughs> it is. Anyway, there's a really good episode of Disgraceland about that. Mm, yeah, 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 it is. You all should listen to it. Um, I've got a Disgraceland one too. They've done a good, uh, you know, my one. <laughs> Uh, okay, this one's pretty bad. Uh, one time in 1976, he fell asleep at the wheel with his seven-year-old son Marlon in the back seat and crashed the car. And afterwards of this accident, he said, quote, I mean, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean. This is what I mean. Like what Maybe a fucking... You say, that was really bad. I shouldn't have done that. I nearly yeah. killed my son. Yeah. I feel, I, I feel. For fuck's sake. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> this is what I mean. Like what a nonchalant way to deal with the fact that something terrible could have happened and it's really your responsibility and you were controlling that situation. Yeah, well, here's another example of that. It's pretty fucked that when their third child died, he didn't go straight home. He stayed on tour, played shows, and I know that everybody reacts and grieves differently, but fucking maybe Anita needed a fucking hug. Yeah. Like a fucking do you know baby how, died? How long? Like was it some time before he went back? I don't know. That's horrid. But he definitely stayed away, which is just shocking. Yeah. He just seems like such a Peter Pan caricature rock and roll type, but I think he did invent that character or rather is that character. Yeah. And I might have thought it was pretty cool once, but now it just seems kind of annoying. <laughs> it is annoying. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. What a dick. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. As for Ronnie Wood. Oh, Ronnie. Hottie. Obviously, Honey, we'll talk about his crimes against beauty. I've said it before and I'll say it again. He is foul. <laughs> so bad for Ronnie. Um, he was also arrested in 2009 when he was 62 over a, quote, domestic incident oh. um, that involved his 19-year-old, very beautiful girlfriend, 
uh, Ekaterina Ivanova. She was like a Russian model. Um, and this event took place in Ronnie's mock castle. <laughs> Who lives in a mock <laughs> castle? Tell me has a moat. Please. It has a moat. Oh my god, does it really? <laughs> yeah. I was I was looking up pictures of it today. Rank. Um anyway, she left him after this and described him as a quote evil goblin king. <gasps> and I could not agree with her more. I called him a goblin face last he, or one other time. He is. He is a goblin. Yeah, it definitely has goblin vibes. Uh, and I'm just going to Goblin end, vibes only. <laughs> I'm going to end this on a very happy note. I'll go on. And tell you that Charlie Watts is my new favourite member of the band. There's nothing on him at all. He's always dressed really well and he just seems like a sweet angel. And he was always faithful to his wife. Like in the 70s when the band was invited to the Playboy Mansion, Charlie just like went straight to the games room and played pool instead of cavorting with the bunnies. Oh, he didn't go in the grotto. Nope. Do you the semen just like swims around in there because uh, the temperature's hot? Oh, I'm still alive. <laughs> Imagine what that place would smell like. Did no, you ever watch you. that show? Yeah, I watched every single episode. And the episode. house was just like rank. It's just shit ever like. Ugh. Dirty. It did seem like that. Uh, anyway, that's it. Yeah, the thing is, like, I think that I knew I was aware a lot of, of a lot of the stuff that you told me. Um, but you know, I think they're definitely dicks. But I'll probably continue to listen to them. But I also mm. just know they're dicks. I like the Beatles better. Yeah, I always used to think that I liked the Rolling Stones better, but I don't anymore. Yeah, fair enough. They're just too annoying. All right, it's time for a quick break, um, and then I'm coming back. We'll leave you on a cliffhanger then. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> We're back. So every time I arrive at Amber's place to record, I say, Hey, hey Mama said the way you move goes make you sweat, go make you groove. <laughs> and then every time, oh, what are you going to say? I was just going to say that when I played at my dad's funeral. Really? Well... It's funny because every time I, I say that, Amber's like, no, you're not. You're not going to make me sweat. You're not going to make me groove. Please stop saying this. Who do you think you are? Robert fucking plant. I do say that. I'm like, that never happens. It's never, ever happened until tonight. <laughs> um, but what is going to happen is that I'm going to be talking about the excess abusing, iconic barneted boys of Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. So let us begin on a journey. Let's so excited. My favorite. So, before Led Zeppelin, there was the Yardbirds. So, they've had a total of 24 members. 
The Yardbirds. Yeah, they're still going strong. They're no, not real. No original members anymore. <laughs> um, see, the, there's a lot of parallels in our story. So they started in 1963. The original lead guitarist was Anthony Top Topham. Cool name. Then came, parallel, the evil, arrogant and morally corrupt <gasps> Eric Clapton. Fuck that guy. Oh, no, he keeps coming in. He's the devil. He's also the villain of... Uh, Season one, episode eight, I believe. Yeah. He's the worst. Yeah. Next came Jeff Beck. Yeah, he's a cool guy. And then the Lord of the Riffs, Jimmy Page, takes the axe. He's the coolest guy. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, eventually, Jimmy and one of the founding members of the Yardbirds, Chris Dreyer, uh, they wanted to form a new band. And there was a lot of like back and forth. But eventually Robert Plant joined the band. Then Robert suggested John Bonham on the skins. Very good idea. So he's in now. And then Drea suddenly decided to become a photographer. So <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to join the gang anymore. And then John Paul Jones, he was like... No relation. No relation either. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, uh, what's the crack with the bass situation? And bingo, bango, you've got yourself the future... Led Zeppelin. I love it. And by all accounts, they were all just really like a perfect fit, like straight away from the get-go. Yes, obviously. Yeah. So they toured Scandinavia as the new Yardbirds, <laughs> but uh, when they got back, the budding photographer, Chris, former bandmate, he sent a cease and desist and was like, hey, you can't use that name anymore, you jerks. Why? He's not using it. Well, well he did well, yeah. Um, but oh, well, they came up with a better name. Yeah. So then, as legend has it, Jimmy Page wanted to form a super group with a bunch of talents. Um, it didn't quite happen, but Keith Moon, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy recorded one song together in 1966 called Beck's Bolero. And here's where it gets a bit, it gets a little bit murky. So either Keith Moon, drummer of The Who, or John, I don't know how to say this, Enwhistle? Ent whistle? Yeah, he is the bass guitarist of The Who. I hate The Who. Really? Mm. I hope we never do them because I... Pinball Wizard! No. Oh, I like The Who. Anyway, <laughs> whatever. Um, they said the song was going to go... Either one of them said the song was going to go down like a lead balloon. And what's the biggest balloon out there? It's got to be a Zeppelin. It's a blimp. Yeah. Well, yeah. Blimp. Lead blimp. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't Zeppelin really, sounds better. Might not be the biggest balloon. I don't know. Maybe a hot air balloon's bigger, but we're not going to split hairs here. No, I think a blimp is bigger. Yeah, me too. So the band's <laughs> gregarious manager, Peter Grant, who may also have something to do with the band's name. There's, you know, things get lost when everyone's so fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um He got them like this really sweet deal with Atlantic Records for more than a million bucks in today's money. So it was a a big deal. In fact, it must have been very good before they even were really a proper band. Yeah, because it was it was actually the it was like the biggest deal that any band had ever got. Yeah, to that point, and. By the sounds of things, it was a pretty good contract. Like they had a lot of um, control creatively. Good. Um, Atlantic Records also, funny you say that, they signed them before they had ever even heard them. Based on what? Nothing. 
That doesn't make any sense. I know. It's wild. They're just uh, throwing money away in the 60s. I know. It's a very 70s, different time. 60s. No, it was 60s. So then the beginning of 1969, heading into the summer of love, they recorded their eponymous debut album and they began a tour across America. And I'm not sure if this is like super normal, but they started this tour before their debut album was even released. So I yeah. guess they were trying to like practice and get traction, get some momentum kind of thing, and then everyone would buy the album maybe. Yeah. But um, it's an interesting order of proceedings. But when the album was released, it was a hit. Yeah, it was. It entered the top ten in America. Well played. Good job, boys. Um, they continued touring and while they were touring, they wrote their second album aptly named Led Zeppelin 2. <laughs> they and weren't very creative. Not at all. Names. So I, it's pretty cool that they did that while they were on the road as well. Yeah. Um, interesting fact and just like odd to think about these two things happening simultaneously, but just a few months before Led Zeppelin's second album was released, Elvis and his sideburn glory, as you so eloquently put it <laughs> in season two, episode one, his sideburns continued to grow and take over his whole face. <laughs> which they did. Yeah, and he released suspicious minds like really close, which yeah. it, I think it's funny. Yeah, it is funny that that to was think happening about. at the same time. Yeah. So back to Let's Up on the Day, we've got to keep our focus. So this album, again, was a huge hit. It solidified them as rock and roll gods, swoon. Mm-hmm. And they kept touring and it seems like that was a, a real constant for the band. Like, in fact, they later break a shit ton of records for humongous sold-out stadium shows and they also in, inspired a couple of riots. Oh, good for them. Yeah. It's when you know you've made it. Well, you're not big until you've caused a riot. 100%. Um, their third album was released and can you can you guess what it was called? Hmm. Was it Led Zeppelin 3? Yes. Bingo Bango. Um, they wrote such good songs. Like the band weren't into releasing singles though. Nah, they were all killer no filler the whole album. Yeah, Jimmy Page had a goddamn vision and it didn't include catchy pop songs, Okay. Mm-mm. No, they created albums that were meant to be listened to as a whole. But some people also say that their manager, Peter, it was like his ploy to make more money. He was a tough guy. Yeah, by all accounts. Yeah. Um, also, the band certainly weren't famous for their brevity. I did a little maths. Mm. As a woman, I'm very naturally gifted at things like maths <laughs> and navigation and science. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, me too. And in those three initial albums, the band was averaging four minutes and 43 seconds per song. I actually did do the best. Oh. Um, <laughs> but their next album was untitled, but they started a whole thing. So everyone called it Lep Zeblin 4. Yes. Uh, also, it, it didn't have any writing on the sleeve, so fair enough. Mm. Um, it was released in 1971. That's the Symbols one. Yeah, it, it's a fucking... Brilliant album. It's a banger. In a review written by Lenny Kay for Rolling Stone, he said, the sheer variety of the album, out of eight cuts, there isn't one that steps on another's toes that tries to do too much all at once. There are oldie English, with an E on the end, ballads. Oh, oldie. Oldie Englishy. I That's... hate oldie and I also hate when people spell shop with an E on the end. <laughs> it's naff. 
or creamery. I like hate when ice cream shops are ice creameries. Ugh, makes me want to vomit. Um, anyway. Yeah, so there are all the Englishy ballads, The Battle of Evermore with... I love that song. Me too, with a lovely performance by Sandy Denny, Mm. a kind of pseudo-blues just to keep in touch, four sticks, a pair of authentic Zeppelinania, Black Dog and Misty Mountain Hop, some stuff that I might actually call shy and poetic if it didn't carry itself off so well, Stairway (laughs) to Heaven and Going to California. It's true. Going to California. Oh, such a good song. When Lou and I went to America last year, we were driving through um, Death Valley listening to that. Like we were were driving out of L.A. and into the desert and we were listening to that. With a in your heart. Oh, so good. Yeah. I just realised I didn't talk about really any of the Rolling Stones songs in my piece. That's fine. You've got a lot to cover. Yeah. Uh, it's anyway that album is it's it's like a, a super duper mashup of styles for sure, but it's also so Zeppelin. Yeah, and Stairway to Heaven was pretty much an instant hit, and it got loads of radio play, which is so weird. Pretty great for a marathon song. Well, it's kind of like Bohemian Rhapsody. It's yeah, like, this should not be a hit, but it's the best song I've ever heard. Hundred percent. And actually, as of last year, that album is still at the number seven of the list of most sold albums. Wow. The Eagles, their greatest hits is number one. What? I know. Ew. Michael Jackson thriller. Eagles again, Hotel California. What? I know. ACDC, Back in Black. These must just be all people who still buy albums. Yeah. (laughs) BJ's in there. Billy Joel, not Brian Jones. Um, Anyway, so... (laughs) Led Zeppelin are pretty much, they're the biggest band in the world at this point. Yeah. And the band were also evolving their look and they started wearing some pretty glamorous and glitzy get-ups. Capes. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mick wore capes too. Capes are the best. I'm actually wearing something akin to a cape right now. Yeah. Um, They also introduced some really exciting shit at their concerts, like fireworks and disco balls and acid. Ooh. No, I'm just kidding. But I, I would guess there was definitely acid at the gigs, but they didn't definitely. give it to anyone. Um, they also got a plane, which was affectionately known as the Starship. It was a Boeing 720. And in a vanity, I think that's how you say it, I actually called my dad and asked him. Because you say. Zero. Yeah, I think so. Um, but in a Vanity Fair article by Lisa Robinson, she described the interior, which is delightful. Give it. Red and orange, were that was the walls. They were like white leather swivel chairs. Wow. My favourite feature, a non-functioning fireplace. Oh, my God. It's a plane. So Um, 70s. I know, circular couches, velvet, of course. Of course. Um... It was a special plane, you know, and but it was carrying like loads of their crew and their gear and a lot of sexy ladies. I wonder if it's still around. I do too. Oh, we should look oh that up. God. I didn't even think to look at that, but we, I Maybe, mean, it must be, right? They should like get it, put it in a field and put it on Airbnb. You could charge it through the roof. You could. Um, they also started trashing hotel rooms at this point. Oh, that fun. was a they big They started jam. it. Yeah. 
They were dismantling grand pianos because they were unable to throw the whole thing out the window <laughs> while it was intact. TVs. Televisions, yeah, mm. they took a big hit. They were yeah. thrown from great heights. Many, many televisions. <laughs> so um, dangerous. Apparently Big Dick Bonham also rode motorbikes through various halls. So fun. Of hotels, yeah. Uh, they were just, they were bloody rascals, frankly, weren't they? I love they? it. I'm into it. Um, so the next album to come out, again, it did not feature the name on the sleeve, but it was called Houses of Holy. Houses of the Holy. Is it the Holy? That's what my dad always said. Wow. I looked that up to double check it because I am often a little lit when I write. <laughs> <laughs> I was sure it was, but whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm. So this was released in 1973 and people, mainly conservative people, <laughs> they were mad as hell about the cover art. Oh, there was nakeds. Yeah, so it's like naked kind of feral, I w- that's my opinion, <laughs> children climbing across and up Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. And there, I think there was a couple of adults, but there was like definitely two children. But isn't it all like orange? Yeah. 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 And yeah, I, the, you only see their cute little baby bums. You, their, their backs towards you. But it's not a big deal. It was enough for them to be up in arms. <sighs> but regardless, the album was a bloody huge success. It was delving into some more experimental shit as well. Great record. Distortion, that kind of thing, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, then they were like... This is getting a bit much. I just want to have a little break. <laughs> All right. But they did start their own record company while they were on a break. So good idea. They weren't unproductive. Uh, next, we have Physical Graffiti. It was a double album, and I myself have stood in front of the very New York Brownstones, the album cover featured. Yeah, nice. In 1975, uh, there was a Rolling Stone review of the album written by Jim Miller, and he said, Physical graffiti only confirms Led Zeppelin's preeminence among hard rockers. And physical graffiti testifies to Page's taste and Led Zeppelin's versatility. Taken as a whole, it offers an astonishing variety of music produced impeccably by Page. Yeah. That's good stuff. Um, It's a positive review. Absolutely. They did get some nego ones, but I'm focusing on the positives. I'm a glass half full kind of girl. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm actually the biggest pessimist. Um, But they they embarked on another big old tour and they started in London, Earl's Court to be exact. Oh, nice. Lovely spot, southwest London, and also where Dennis Nilsson stalked his victims. It's just a fun side fact. Uh, But then there was an accident. Oh, yeah? (gasps) Robert Plant and his wife Maureen Wilson went on a bit of a jaunt in Greece and they had a terrible car crash. Maureen had, uh, she had to get a blood transfusion. Oh. She was in intensive care with a broken pelvis and a fractured skull. Oh, holy shit. I think Robbie fractured his ankle and elbow and also his two children were both in the car and they were... Both had fractures somewhere as well. They were so cute. (laughs) Curly white hair. Yeah. Anyways, the bloody two had to be canned, didn't it? Mm. That elbow's going to affect you. Um, It was very jerky dancing. Yeah. Couldn't do that with a... No way, Jose. Also, probably needed to look after his wife. 
I don't think he did. He went to um, Malibu instead in yeah. California and um, <laughs> all, all the fellas joined in there and they wrote that maybe he did look after his wife, but they did all go there and they um, wrote their next album, Presence, while he recuperated. Mm. Um, the album re- was released in 1976. It was a hit, but it, maybe not to the same extent as the previous yeah. ones, but still a hit. It's not my favourite. No. Also, I think there was speculation that Robert Plant was dabbling in a bit of uh, heroin at that point. It was the time. In some sense, that like affected the quality of the record, I guess. Yeah, possibly. Anyway, at this point, uh, they had outsold none other than the Rolling Stones. Suck it, Keith. Ooh. Um,. Instead of touring, the band released a music film, which... Oh, God, I love it so much. It's so funny. <laughs> it got mixed reviews, but yeah. But I love it. It's funny in, like, the way that it's so, like, <laughs> hobbits and... <laughs> <laughs> they fucking love Lord of the Rings, <laughs> I know. That shit so much. They fucking can't get enough oh, of it. So funny. Um... A while ago I was entertaining the idea of moving to New Zealand. I'm not even kidding. Like every single person I asked were like, are you going to get a job at Hobbiton? And I was just like, can you fuck off? Because you're sure. Well, yeah, but I mean my feet are all right. They don't look like those. No. Not that short. But we have to do it. Oh, no, they don't wear shoes. Hobbits do they? No, but they're hairy. You just need some big shoes. (laughs) (laughs) No, they've got like really hairy, (laughs) ugly feet. (laughs) I am not going to do anything for Tarantino. (laughs) My feet. Oh, the foot fetish. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, maybe that was a bit of a stretch. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. So... Led Zeppelin also, along with many other bands, sounds like the Stones too, they were avoiding taxes imposed on them and uh, they were pretty much not really touring in the UK anymore, so that definitely affected their popularity there. But they did tour with the old US of A. Mm. At this point, like, some shit's happening behind the scenes and the band is sort of like, I don't know, having some issues, I guess. But John... Bonham, along with three others, were arrested at this stage. They viciously assaulted a security (gasps) guard at their Oakland show. Why? Well, Bonham was fined and received a suspended sentence. But I read, there's different accounts. I read that the security guard had assaulted or like slapped Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant's 11-year-old son. What? And that was the catalyst to the whole mess. I've got an issue with security guards, so. Yeah. I'm totally. But they really did. Oh. Beat the shit out of it. It's a bit not cool, like. Yeah. A few on one guy. Yeah, but to be fair, there was a shit ton of different accounts as to why it started, but I don't know. But that was a very common one that I came across. Um, And that was the band's final ever US show. Because in yet another fucking parallel, the following day they headed to New Orleans for the next show and Robert got word that his son had died from a stomach virus. So sad. And he, yeah, he was fucking understandably devastated and the tour was immediately cancelled and they went, he went straight home. Keith. a normal reaction. Um, 
John Paul Jones and Robert together wrote All My Love for his son Carrick, which is such aye, a beautiful aye, aye. song. It's so, fucking, it's so sad. It's my dead dad song. Is it? You've got quite a few. Yeah, look, I've got a few. And that's fair enough. My dad loved music. He did. I love music. Yeah. So in 1978, the band started work on a new album and went on a little European tour, but they then played their final concert in the UK in 1979, soon after they released their next album, which was In Through the Outdoor. Mm. I like that name. It's, I like that album. It was their eighth and final album. Oh, yeah, and then so in 19... 19- 80, they went off on like a little final European tour, but that swiftly ended because John Bonham collapsed on stage. And obviously like everyone, you know, they thought it was because it was fucked, but apparently the band claimed he had overeaten. So as a strong proponent of overeating and as someone who frequently partakes in the pastime, I'm not convinced. I am. You really think he collapsed on stage because he ate too much? You could eat too much, then you got to jump around. You could, you know, you get a stitch. <laughs> <laughs> Robert's got to run back into the to the to the drum kit and like rub it out of I John. Really like if he ate meat and cheese, sweating, maybe a bolognese because oh. then you got carbohydrates in there as well. It's fucking disaster. You got protein, you got dairy, you got carbohydrates. <laughs> <Too much. laughs> He had a big bowl of bolognese and <laughs> <laughs> took to the stage. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to say also they recorded their last album at Polar Studios, which was Abba's joint. They owned it. Oh. Yeah, just weird. Uh, more tragedy now struck. No. So the band were about to commence another North American tour and they were rehearsing, they were getting all this shit together before they heading, like, for before they left. Mm. And then uh, John Bonham was picked up for rehearsal and on the way he was like, I want a bit of brekkie. So they stopped. He got a ham roll and he had a little side of vodka. And then when he was at the rehearsal, he continued to drink and then eventually they called it, headed back to Jimmy Page's gaff, not the one previously owned by Alistair Crowley, but the one he bought from Michael Caine, you know the one. Oh, yeah. Um, so he headed back and John, again, continued to drink and he fell asleep and someone took him to a bedroom and put him on his side. And it says, it always says that in everything. It they says put they him put him on his side. On his side. Yeah. Uh, and very sadly, the next morning, the band's tour mag- manager, um, Benji Lefevere and John Paul Jones found John Bonham dead. Mm. Yeah, he had choked on his own vomit during the night and later it was deemed an accidental death. But they they didn't find any drugs in his system. No, it was just a boozer. Yeah, although he had recently been prescribed some medication to tackle his anxiety after allegedly having a bit of a heroin addiction. Oh. Allegedly. Um the autopsy did find that he had 40 shots of vodka. Whoa. It's like a bit less than like fucking four pints of vodka. That's a lot. It's hectic. He was 32. John. Yeah. So and he yeah. left behind a beautiful family. He did. 
And ELO's drummer Bev Bevan was quoted in an article, which I thought kind of put it well, um, in Louder Times, written by Chris Welsh. And he said, he was an extrovert, a friendly, huggable bloke, but unfortunately the drink just got too much for him. He overdid it and could become quite aggressive. He was similar to Keith Moon. They felt they had to live up to their reputations. No. I know. And after this there was like loads of speculation as to whether John would be replaced. There was a lot of like, you know, people were being like, oh, this person, this person, this person. But in a press release the band said, we wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. Respect. And that was it. And the other band members, they had like other bands, solo careers. They like individually produced albums. Um, They released unheard Led Zeppelin gems of the past. Um, They've reunited a bunch of times. One time a... Live Aid, this is a shout-out to uh, Bob Dylan and the hot white shirted sweaty as a priest in a playground mess, season two, episode one, if anyone's curious. But I think that the the band really ended when John Bonham ended. Yeah. So I'm going to leave it at that. When they played again, didn't they have Bonham's son? Yeah, but it was a mess. Well... Still, it's really nice. Not because of John Bonham. I think it was no. Jimmy Page or something lost his shit. Look, I just think that's lovely. Me too. I mean, I I love Led Zeppelin. They were like the soundtrack of my teendom. Like I repeatedly listened to Led Zeppelin 4 while I did my homework. Their over is astonishingly impressive. And their hair was luxuriant and rich and it was really <laughs> full of wonder. But I would like to hear it from you, my sunshine baby. Why do you love Bonzo, Percy, Led Wallet and Jonesy? Well, I've always loved them. They were a big influence on me. My father loved them. Mm. Um, And we were listening, like me and my friend group were listening to them from when I was like 13 as like, our music. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I know every song so well and they're just, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't going to think too much about what I was going to say here and now I don't know what to say. I just love them. Yeah, they're great. I feel like they're the soundtrack to our life, just like the Stones. The Stones well, I feel less... That way about the stones. Well, that's why I guess I'm I, doing them. Yeah, let's have <laughs> true. But I like don't. I th- guess I just really. Uh, s- their music just fucking speaks to me. It's so beautiful and clever, mm. but it's also just like fucking fun rock and roll music. Gets you dancing. So good. They're also handsome. They're mm. actually good looking. Who do you think is the hottest? Well, I think Robert Plant is the hottest, mm. followed by John Bonham. I reckon John Bonham's the hottest. Then Paige. Then yeah. what's his face, Jones. Mm. But I think they're all really handsome. I fucking love their look. Yeah. I think they were like pioneers in that sphere as well. They're just way cooler than all the other fucking 
English rock bands, I think. Mm. Just cool as shit. Yeah. And, yeah, as I said right at the beginning, that they just sort of epitomised my dad's kind of vibe, Mm. rock and roll vibe thing. And I guess it kind of makes me want to cry a little bit because... I just love them so much. Yeah. I don't feel good about doing the next bit now <laughs> with the emotion in the room. No. And then, yeah, playing um, Black Dog at his funeral was really special to me. Yeah. I, when I spoke to the funeral director, I was like, I want it really loud. How loud is your stereo system? And he was like, I mean, mostly people don't want it very loud. And I was like, well, I want it fucking loud. <laughs> Because that's what my dad would have wanted. Priest George, do you need me to bring in some extra speakers? He was like, it's a really long song. And I was like, I don't care. (laughs) Anyway. I tell you once, you're a man of the clergy. I'm not going to tell you twice. (laughs) I want it loud. Let's get loud. Loud. All right, shall I? Don't. Let's just stop now. I don't know. I'm at, I think this is the one I really don't want you to ruin. Oh, it's not that bad. Okay, good. Go. All right. So let's get on that stairway, although we're not going to heaven. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, I have a couple of bits and bobs about the band, like, as a whole. Okay. We'll start with the obvious. They all cheated on their wives constantly. Obviously. Uh, there's also... The frequently alleged sexual degradation of fans. Oh. No doubt. Uh, once a journalist named Ellen Sanders was interviewing the band for Life magazine and you know what they did? What? They started attacking her like wild animals. Um, this has been said to have been led by John Bonham, but they were all involved. They all took part and they ripped her clothes off her body. What? And then she said of the attack, they were in a frenzy. I was absolutely terrified that I was going to be raped. That is really bad. While she was doing her job, obviously. Eventually the band's manager, Peter Grant, helped Ellen and pulled the band off her. That is... Fucked. So fucked. Mm. They have a laundry list of crimes of plagiarising as well. Oh. In fact, there is actually a Wikipedia article titled List of Led Zeppelin Songs Written or Inspired by Others. Oh, really? <laughs> Solely dedicated. Uh, they <laughs> often awarded themselves with writing credits when they certainly didn't deserve them. There was a six-year lawsuit regarding the originality of Stairway to Heaven. Really? Yeah, and whether Led Zeppelin had stolen the riff from a band called Spirit's song called Taurus. Yeah, well, no one's heard of them, have they? It was settled in October 2020. (laughs) What? Yeah, uh, in Led Zeppelin's favour. So, Mm -hmm. But they stole a lot of music from blues artists too. Um, In more recent times, Plant and Page both openly admit they did steal music, so they've said it themselves. Really? Yeah. So shall, shall we get into a bit of individual debauchery? Yeah, tell me some stuff. We shall begin with one John Paul Jones. All right. No, no relation. relation. <laughs> <laughs> he was a silent assassin. He was a secret, unassuming weapon. 
He worked with a shit ton of like incredible artists. I can't remember if I mentioned this, but John and Jimmy worked as session musicians. Mm. Um, they together before like the band. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that was kind of like obviously they've been kind of like working together. They knew each other. But uh, anyway, so he worked with my Paparino's favorite, The Shadows, which is another soundtrack yeah. of my youth. Shirley Bassey, Diamonds, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help myself. Limp Biscuit, what? Yep, uh, that I just threw that, that into is... flavor. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. I thought you were kidding no. for a second. Nico, oh cool. Another one of my faves, The Kinks. Oh, one of your love f- them. Oh, I thought you were going to say you didn't. I was like, we. No, no. If you don't like The Kinks, you got to get out, and I'm going to shut the door. <laughs> Because there's something wrong with you. The kings are the best. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, One of your faves, Marianne Faithful. Mm. The who? The Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones. (laughs) Um, He's also one of three members of the supergroup, Them Crooked Vultures. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, Shout out season one, episode two. And also my one and only Dusty Springfield who worked with her. Mm-hmm. That's my solo. Amber and I sing in a choir, just so everybody knows. They're called the Bad Bitch Choir. It's perfection. Everyone in the choir is incredible. We're the best. If you don't know, now you know. Yes. Back to Paulie. There's nothing to see here. Couldn't find a crumb of bad behavior. <laughs> um He's the Charlie Watts. Of He's the Charlie Zeppelin. Watts, totally. <laughs> That's like bizarro world. But um, he, he never let, it doesn't seem like he let like the fame go to his head. And he once spoke about how he was like rec- less recognisable. There's nothing to see here. Couldn't find a crumb of bad behaviour. <laughs> he just, he never let the fame go to his head. And he once spoke about how he was like a lot, he was a lot less recognisable than like Robert and Jimmy. Yeah, I can't think of what he looks like. I don't think I can and I've just researched this for weeks. <laughs> but he also, yeah. like, he intentionally changed the way he looked so he wouldn't be recognised. Oh, clever. And he would, like, arrive, they'd arrive at the hotels and he'd often just go out walking and probably they would just be getting fucked up. But there was yeah. one quote which kind of resonated with me. He said, I once read the Beatles did a whole tour of America and never left their hotel rooms. And I thought, I can't see the point of traveling around the world and not seeing anything. Totally. I know. I thought about that a lot. Like people who tour. Well, like my favorite murder. Yeah. They always are like, just were staying in the room and never going anywhere. It's like, are you fucking mental? But I am also (laughs) like, I'm, I, I, once Lou and I were in Berlin and then I remember like, I think it was the last day. And when we woke up, she was like, Cara, I cannot do any other cultural fucking activities okay <laughs> and like also Lulu another friend she was just like if I see another fucking Picasso which I think we've spoken about she's like I'm gonna kill you so I'm quite Look, I it, get it on holidays I'm like jam it in who knows when we'll be here next kind of thing you know I need a holiday from the holiday sometimes but I think we should do back to backers <laughs> you know like combine it have like a very like culturally rich holiday where you're doing all these activities and then just go lie somewhere where you yeah. can't do anything. That sounds good. Yeah, well, it's not really realistic for the vast majority of us. No. People, including myself. <laughs> um, so right. Someone named 
Benoit Gautier at Atlantic Records said, the wisest guy in Led Zeppelin was John Paul Jones. Why? He never got caught in an embarrassing situation. He's the Charlie Watts. Yeah. And he does admit to doing more drugs than he cares to remember, but apparently he just kind of took care of his shit. He was a classy guy. Yeah. Good on you, mate. Next. All right, moving on. Jones for you. Oh. Uh, So this is a bit of a callback to our David Bowie and Jim Morrison episode, which was season one, episode six, if you're keen. Oh, yes. And we're back with the disturbingly named Baby Groupies. Ew. And the specific member we shall discuss is one 14-year-old Laurie Maddox. Mm-hmm. Uh, after, yeah, so she had sex for the first time with David Bowie. Yep. When she was 14, I think, and he was 25, spoiler alert. Something like that. And then she met Jimmy. Uh, in a Phoenix New Times article written by David Acamazo, the meeting was described by Laurie as such. What happened is that I was kidnapped, literally. He told me he was going to be with me and I said, no, he wasn't. And he said, yes, I am. And then we all ended up at the Rainbow and Richard Cole, that was their tour manager at the time, he says to me, get in the bloody car and if you move, I'll have a red. Oh, God. (laughs) Next thing you know, I'm at the hotel and I'm walking down the hall and next thing you know, she's a bit repetitive in this, sorry. Um, I'm pulled into this door and I turn around and look, there was Jimmy sitting in the corner of the room with a hat and a cane saying, I told you I'm going to have you. Ooh. Predator. So. That's yucky. I know. By many accounts, Jimmy also purposely very much hid the fact that Laurie was underage. Possibly because in the eyes of the Lord, that's statutory fucking rape. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, Mm. you're hiding it. Uh, In the same article, Laurie said, he always left me with his security, locked me in a room. It wasn't really allowed. Oh, sorry, I wasn't really allowed to go very many places with him. God. So I think he was like about the control, but. I mean, this, I mean. Yeah. Well, um, obviously, almost famous was uh, inspired by this. More than that, though, I think that was there but was many like, contributors. Sure, but I think that that was what it was mostly based on. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of. I thought it was more of an amalgamation, amalgamation of like Bibi Buell and a bunch of different women. Yeah, but how they had this whole relationship mm. for a really long time. Yeah, and they did. They were turned. She was so young. Yeah. Um, Yuck. Oh, but as you mentioned in your in our previous episode, Laurie, in no, she never felt like a victim. She never proclaimed to be a victim, and she looks back at her memories of the baby groupies uh, with warm hearted affection. Yeah. Look. Although she has, and you, I think you might have spoken about this as well, but she's, she has kind of felt differently recently and spoken about her shift in consciousness post the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, but as far as I could find, Jimmy has never addressed this, never acknowledged it. Um, so Jimmy and Laurie, they continued their dangerous liaison for some years until eventually Jimmy left Laurie for Bibi Buell. 
Lev Tyler's mum. Mm. Yeah. But I, I think she was part of the – well, all – and Pamela DeBears yeah, as well. Yeah, they were all. So um, there's that, but no, it's not. incredibly young. It's not great at no. all. It's super disgusting. Also, he still likes the younger ladies because he's current, currently dating uh, Scarlett Sabay or Sabetch, who's almost exactly one year younger than me. You're very young. She's 14. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's 31. And I know what you're thinking. I know she's not that young, Kari, you old fucking hag. But still, it's 40 years between them. Yeah, 40 years is considerable. Uh, yeah. Uh, some claim Jimmy he made a deal with the devil, a la Robert Johnson, yep, to ensure yep. the band's success. He did. Probably. There was like a whole thing with... Him and David Bowie. I'm not sure if I put it in my episode. It would, and the, that was like also cool. And the, the, just Graceland had part of it with that. Mm. Like they went over, and then they're all doing coke and they're drinking, and then like Jimmy's like so not the devil responding in the pool or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Pamela DeBars, who I just mentioned, um, I'd say she's probably the most famous groupie of all time. Yeah. So Her she, book is so good. Yeah. Is it I'm with the band? I think that's, yeah. yeah. And so she said of Jimmy, I'm amazed at his sadistic tendencies. There's such a part of him that I doubt if he'll ever stop. Ew. It was really frightening. He changed into another person, but he, uh, but all he did was chew me and slap me a little. Chew you? Mm-hmm. Oh, gross. Jimmy responded to this statement saying, if you humiliate them a bit, they tend to come on all right after that. What? Everyone knows what they come for. When did he say that? I think around the same time. So it was actually around the time, like in the 70s. Oh, yuck. I didn't have a date for that, sorry. One more quick fun fact about Jimmy. So the occult and Alistair Crowley, he loved that shit. So in 1971, he bought Crowley's former residence, which was in the majestic and mythical Loch Ness, Scotland. Mm. Uh, It was apparently quite haunted, but not by Crowley himself. So Jimmy said (laughs) in a Rolling Stones article in 1975, there were two or three owners before Crowley moved into it. It was also a church that was burned to the ground with the whole congregation in it. What? Yeah. Strange things have happened in that house that had nothing to do with Crowley. The the bad vibes were already there. A man was beheaded there and sometimes you can hear his head rolling down. Oh. And he was like, I love it. Yeah, I I mean, well, I read that and I thought of you, so that's why I included it. (laughs) Thank you. I really like it. All right, let's move on. We're going on to Roberto. Mm -hmm. He was married, as I mentioned, to Maureen. But his MO was telling girls that he was just about to leave his wife. He was done. He was out. Oh, God. And he loved them and they were perfect. He's just saying they're perfect. Big well, lies. At they had a good experience. As opposed to Jimmy? Yeah. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> a good experience based on lies and yeah, adultery. Yeah, I'd rather be lied to than chewed. Okay. Well, he was married from 1968 to 1983 to that wife, but also, I mean, like, obviously he's not... Leave it out. 
He also said, I've met members of the opposite sex who were only eight or nine when we first went into a studio and they're great fucks. What? <laughs> Ew. That's not true. That's so weird. I know. Not true, right? Eight. Wait, say it again. I've met members of the opposite sex who were only eight or nine when we first went into a studio and they're great fucks. Okay. So what he's saying is it's, t- <laughs> it's time after that. They're no longer eight or nine. They weren't in the studio with them at eight and nine. No. <laughs> um, honestly, though, he Ugh. seems, he actually, he seems like a reasonable guy. He loves Welsh, Welsh history and, like, he Same. gives some chunk of change to, like, Oh, yeah, he gave a bunch of cash to get frontline workers PPE during the pandemic, so that's nice. Mm. Not that it's over, but, you know. Love you, Robbie. Finally, we have John Bonham. Mm. He was one of the, I think he was one of the greatest fucking dramas of all time, hands down. You don't have to say I think. You can say he was Yeah, the greatest. Well, there's no argument. He was. Yeah. It's a fact, okay? Um just really yelled, but he drove drunk quite frequently mm. and despite putting on a chauffeur's hat, which he did generally, <laughs> it's cute. never cute. Oh, oh my God. I you just... just go, it, no, it's <laughs> never cute. It's selfish. It's absolutely selfish. It's negligent, oh, even, just... even with accessories. It's cute with the hat maybe. Not when you're drunk driving. No. As someone who's just gotten their licence though, my urge to drive every time I'm drunk is so strong. I won't. Jesus. But the urge. Why? Where do you want to go? A- anywhere. <laughs> I think you're just excited to drive. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But all that hard work will be swiftly taken away with you mm. for a long time. I would never. No. Um, anyway. But back then, everybody did. I'm just mentioning it. We're going to get into some heavier shit now. Relax. I've got some bigger juicy bits. I'm starting light. Anyway, he sounded like a fucking nightmare when he drunk, which was all the time, and his personality just kind of switched. We're going to talk about what the New York Post referred to as the most notorious groupie incident in rock and roll history. Oh, dear. But take that with a grain of salt because there are so many inconsistencies and diverging accounts of this evening, and I'd say that was because, again, everyone was fucked up. Yeah. Also, if I had a dollar for every fucking article that claims to have the real truth about this story, I would take us out for dinner. It might be a bit of a Mars bar in the vagina exactly. situation. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. There was yeah. so, When you were telling me, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, all right. So it's 1969. Led Zeppelin, they're, they're t- Led Zeppelin are touring with Vanilla Fudge. Never heard of them. Neither. Um, they're in Seattle. Maybe they're like Cream's cousin. <laughs> but they're in, <laughs> they're in Seattle and everyone is staying at a place called Ed, the Edgewater Inn. Cool. I really want to stay here sometime. You can still stay there. Okay. But it's right on the water and you can mm. fish from your hotel room. <laughs> Do you like fishing? Yeah, I'm really good fisher. Oh, okay. I know I went out fishing not that long ago <laughs> and I just kept on catching fish and then people were like, I thought you didn't know how to do it because I had to ask people how to cast and then I just fucking caught them all and I was like... Beginner's luck. It was. I mean, I've caught fish before, but anyway. <laughs> um, 
Anyways, let's move on. So everyone is just having a great time. They're getting high. They're having a fish, you know. (laughs) And then apparently they had quite a successful fishing sort of little time. Yeah. And um, they had a veritable aquarium in the room's bathtub. Oh. So the story goes that John Bonham, Richard Cole and likely some roadies tied a woman... I don't know, that might be a little bit of an overstatement. I couldn't find her age. No one knows who this woman is. Mm-hmm. They tied her to a bed and then they proceeded to sex her with a fish. No. You know this. And the t- you've heard, you know this I story, have right? heard this story. But the two most frequently referred to species in the story are either a <laughs> mud shark or a red snapper. I've heard the mud shark. Uh, there's a couple others too. Um, in like... <laughs> There's a few different <laughs> variants, but I couldn't tell a fish from a fish, to be fair. Um, in a 1985 biography of the band, Stephen Davies describes the incident as a pretty young groupie with red hair was disrobed and tied to the bed. Led Zeppelin then, I mean, all of them, but Led Zeppelin <laughs> then proceeded to stuff pieces of shark into her vagina you know and what? wrecked him. That's ridiculous. I found little evidence that any of the other band members aside from Bonham were present. So obviously this witness doesn't even know. That wasn't a witness. He was a biographer. Oh. And he got his information from Richard Cole. Who's that? He's a tour manager. Oh. Hang on. So also Carmine Apice, I don't know how to say it, but he's a drummer of Vanilla Fudge. He claims to have been there. And he said that they started whipping the girl with it, sorry, I'm going to quote him, started whipping the girl with it, beating her again and again as she writhed around the bed. Its teeth ripped her skin and left tiny blood red scars all over her back. Mm. And then he also said, I really think it was probably the roadies. Sorry, roadies. um, There was other things about the roadies too where they just kind of escalated shit. But... He also said that after the initial hilarity, everyone was laughing. They were all like, ha, <laughs> um, And then the roadie started to really humiliate her. Um, and then he claims it was all filmed and that, like, at that point people wanted to leave the room because it got really fucked up. Yuck. Uh, Richard Cole has also commented in more recent times on his involvement. It was nothing malicious or harmful. No way. She might have been hit by a shark a few times for disobeying orders but she didn't get hurt and also it was a red snapper and it wasn't some big ritualistic thing it was in and out and a laugh and the girl wasn't sobbing she was a willing participant it was so fast and over and done with and no one from the band was there I don't think anyone who was there remembers the same thing Mm. Uh, after reading a zillion accounts of this fucking story, I can wholeheartedly agree with that last statement. Okay. But also, do you know Cynthia Plastercaster? Are you aware of her? I am aware of her. She made Plastercasts of Rockstar's dicks. Yeah. Um, well, she said that Richard Cold actually pissed on her while she was giving Robert head. Ew. So who knows what we should think of him. And he also was said to be 
genuinely terrifying, this man. Like a journalist has said he was truly terrifying. Didn't he throw someone out of a window or something? Possibly. I don't Mm. know. Um, He said it was just the nose that he like popped inside the woman. Should we do a content warning on this? Um, but um, but then he also said that she totally came like 20 times. Oh, fuck off. Which is pretty impressive as he also, as I said, mentioned how fast it was. It was like nothing. It was really quick. But she totally came oh, God. 20 times. Now I'm conflicted. I know. But regardless, it seems like Bonham watched it, but he didn't really get involved. Oh. Frank Zappa wrote a song about it. Yuck. There was another incident with one of the starships, the plane, the, like, flight attendants. Bonham had drunk a bottle of whiskey and he emerged in a robe, grabbed one of the flight attendants, bent her over forward and, like, yelled how he was going to have her from the rear and Ew. she was just, like, screaming and trying to get away from no. him. He also punched a woman, allegedly punched a woman in the face who smiled at him in a bar. What? It's not great. Oh, I'm taking him off. That's all I've got. That's it. How do you feel about these raw, power-wielding, iconic gods of rock and roll? Well, I'm going to try not to think about it. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) And continue loving them. Yeah. It's a horrible thing to say. I'm just a lot more lenient. (laughs) Well, I actually feel quite sick. Do you? Yeah. The fish vagina stuff? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Mm. Do you know, it's funny because, like, the woman in that scenario, like, where is that woman? If she never came forward. Did it even happen? Many people said it did, but the sto- this is what I'm saying, the stories yeah. are all so, like, they're all pretty similar, but there's very there's different aspects. There was a young girl and fish tying was a common Ugh, thing. That's so gross. But then other people said that she was just like fucking loving it, and like there was just a lot writhing of around. Yeah. Mm, well, look, whatever floats your boat. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It it's pretty it's, humiliating and. It's such a legendary thing that's just been passed on mm. and through. And, mm. um, well, that's it, really. Okay. Do you still love them? I don't know. <laughs> I have been listening to them still, but, like, there's, like, a weird kind of, it's that thing about a time and about thinking about the amount of drugs and just being like it was a very out of control moment mm. and not as in an excuse but I think that that's like a safety net for me to continue to listen to them in some way. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Maybe that's a dick move. But you know what's not a dick move? Finishing season two. And guess what? We've already planned season three. That's right. Yeah. It's already planned out. And we've also got a pretty sick bonus episode that was going to pop up for you. We're going on a work retreat. So keep an eye on your feed. Um, Follow us on Instagram at SorryHeSucksPod. We have a Facebook as well. No Mm. one seems to really do anything on there. So Engage with Um, But, yeah, thank you. Thank you you so much. We're having heaps of fun and 
We hope you are also. Yeah, we really, and we really, really appreciate some of the messages we've got. Oh, and mate, I want to cry every time. Every, like we send each other these things. Screenshots. Look, someone likes us. And then we both. And we're always assuming the that these people are a, a friend of the other person and it's very exciting. Yeah, every time just... I'm like, is this one of yours? And, and then Emma's like, no, I don't know them. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, it's a real one. <laughs> uh, yes. So, so thank you. Yeah. Um, and we won't be on break for too long. We just need to catch up now. Catch up, write some more shit, and we're so excited. And... Goodbye for now. See you later. It's only it's only so long. Yeah, it's not goodbye. Fun voyage. <laughs> Ciao. We have used multiple sources in the research for this podcast. All of these can be found in the show notes. This podcast was written by Kara Nissen and Amber Jones with music and engineering by Morgan Jones. DJ Morgs! <laughs> Sorry, I should have laughed. I like it.